Hi guys, today we are going to be talking about bodies and bones. That's what we always talk about. <laughs> it, it is, but we're going to sprinkle a little bit of religion in there. It's going to be different, it's going to be twisted, it's going to be interesting, it's going to be spiritual, so hold on to your panties for episode 6. Welcome to Plot Twist. To the very western border of Ohio to a little town called Maria Stein and they have a really really cool I guess like relic collection and I mean it's actually a huge, a huge place they have um, it used to be a convent yeah so it's a pretty big property um, of course they have a church there and then they actually have a museum there as well which was cool, but, like, I didn't really come for that. No. Um, and, like, conference rooms and a big garden and a chapel outside, which we went to, but we were really there for their reliquary, which is in a chapel there. They have, I think, over 900. They have over 900 relics. Oh, wow. Actually, here it says over 2,000 relics. Over 2,000 relics. So, yeah, it was cool. Um, they even have one really interesting relic from the body of St. Saint, Saint Victoria from the 4th century. She is, it was very interesting. So she was kind of preserved in the style of an incorruptible corpse, which we're going to get into. But her, her remains were, are decaying underneath. She's covered in wax and her body is like clothed. And people have, she's got a bunch of rings on her wax fingers that people put on when they have prayed for her intercession, their prayers have been answered. So it was really cool. But, so we're going to talk about some relics, get into that, talk about some incorruptible corpses, because these are, because we are a little bit inspired by our trip to Maria Stein. Yes. Um, and then we also have an interview coming at you from our friend Alexis, who just has um, a better grasp of Catholicism than many could hope to have, in my opinion. She's very educated in, in going to school. Um, to study canon law. Thank you. Which is basically the law of the, the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess basically in the So she's it. got a really good perspective on a lot of these things, so it'll be interesting for you to hear all that she has to say. Really cool stuff. So our original intent to go to um, Maria Stein Shrine was to learn more about incorruptible corpses. There aren't really many incorruptible corpses in the United States, and this is the most similar thing that they have to an incorruptible, incorruptible corpse where her body is covered in wax. Um, she continues to, you know, her remains have already been decayed, but they tried to preserve her. She appears to be how she did in life. But actually, when we went there, we had a lot more questions about the relics themselves. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm just going to go 
very quickly into the importance of saints and Catholicism because actually Alexis is going to cover this a lot better in our interview. But very quickly, saints in the Catholic Church are people that have led exemplary lives, um, that have been recognized by the church in Rome as, um, you know, being in heaven and being extremely holy and an example for other people. Uh, Catholics pray to saints for help, um, for intercession, so that, you know, to kind of put in a good word to God. But incorruptible corpses are not only found in uh, Catholicism, they're found in many other religions in general. But the reason that incorruptible corpses have been found in Catholic saints is because people would go to dig up the bodies. They'd be like, okay, so we buried them, you know, in their church graveyard or whatever, and they wanted to move it to Rome or somewhere else more holy to give them like a really good, you know, good view for the afterlife where people could come visit them. But then when they dig them up, they realize that they are, their bodies haven't decayed into the normal process that you would expect so they you'd come you dig up a body of a saint from like 10 years ago and they looked like they had been decayed you know for like two weeks and a lot of times the big thing is the bodies are still pliable they're not like rigid like you'd think of not as rigid as a normal huh. corpse people that have been embalmed using like any artificial means like we do today and also bog bodies do not count because there are specific environmental factors or artificial factors that have led to their um, preservation. Actually, people report of having some kind of like sweet floral scent when they dig up the corpse, which is not exactly what you would expect. No, this is interesting. I, I mean... I don't think I've ever smelled a ripe corpse before, but I did have an anatomy lab, and that did not, that scent took a minute to get used to, but that's not floral. Not exactly. Not rotting, but not floral. No. Not sweet. Not sweet. Maybe a little sickeningly sweet. Ooh, that's why everybody is telling me this. That's how I feel. I mean, I know everybody has a little bit of different description, but, like, that was my thing. And that might have been the formaldehyde, but I was like, it just felt, smells like sickeningly sweet, like not even, in no way pleasant. Hmm. That's just me. Um, after a body is found to be incorruptible, it doesn't have to never decay for it to still be considered incorruptible. It is actually a lot of times the expectation for bodies to eventually start to decay just at a slower rate or once disturbed, it may start to decay. And this is something I didn't know, because I had a lot of questions about incorruptible saints and, like, the validity of that. Um, and I was actually under the impression that if you were found incorruptible, it was like, boom, you're a saint, which is not true, as you've told me. Um, no, and this is stuff I've learned, too. Yeah, so it's interesting that they, they you can still start to decay and still be considered incorruptible. Because I just, I didn't think that's how that worked. I didn't either. I thought it was a forever thing. If they eventually find that you're, like, decomposing, then, you know, you're out. But that is actually not the case. So, um, but there are some um, corpses of saints that have, that are still fairly in, uh, intact. One example 
is um, St. Sylvan. He was a 4th century martyr. Um, he's in display. I forget where he's on display. But his, he still has an, like, his facial structure is still intact. You can see his eyebrows. You can see his beard. And his lips still have a little bit of color in them, even to this day. Um, that's pretty weird. It's great. I mean, that's almost 2,000 years later. So. Them are some juicy lips. Those are some. Mm-hmm. Maybe had some, like, 4th century fillers or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then another one is St. Catherine of Bologna. Um, is in the Chapel of Bologna since the 1500s. And her skin is shriveled, but her body structure has been maintained, I mean, in a way that you would not have expected from yeah. 600 years, 700 years ago? 700. Wow. And this is, what, is, what is her name? 500 years ago. I don't know the math. Saint? Saint Catherine of Bologna. I'm looking it up. But you, you can go on. Okay. The church today actually doesn't consider, um, the church today doesn't actually consider incorruptibility as a sign of saintly. I'm going to see if this is, I can start with it. Let me see, let me see. Oh, I don't, I don't, I'm looking at the, the sound of the corner of my eye and I don't think I want to see this actually. I mean, I wouldn't say that she looks good. Oh no, she does not look good at all. I mean, they said her skin looked bad, but this is not what I expected at all. I think if you scroll to the top, there's, like, yeah, a close-up. I mean, I'm going to say she looks fairly good for considering that she's, like, 500 years old. I mean, but I will I mean, she is pretty intact in terms of... Not what she once was, that's for sure. Hmm. How do you go from this to this? This... That's decomposition, baby. Oh boy. Alright. Anyway, if you want to look her up, maybe we'll put her on Instagram. Yeah. Whew. So in order to canonize a saint, the church in Rome has to verify um, miracles performed through the intercession of the saint. They used to say that, you know, if the, there was incorruptible corpse, that that is a sign that the saint is, you know, up for saint, it could be up for, the person could be up for sainthood. They don't recognize that anymore as, you know, a good enough reason on its own. Okay. Mainly because there have been some shitty people that have actually been, um, incorruptible. There's this cardinal who was, um, in cahoots with Mussolini Oh. Who was famously not a good dude. Right. So they were like, oh, so, and his body was still, you know, considered incorruptible. They were like, well, this is not, this is not a good example. Okay. So from that, then they're kind of like, okay, now, you know, seems like there may be some other explanations. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily saying that, you know, divine intervention may not be one of them, but... There's obviously some other, some other mm. things at play here. Yes. So, yeah, a lot of the incorruptible saints are, well, in some instances, since they can still decay, they'll try to, like, preserve them in their natural state so that people can come and see them. There was, sometimes they'll try to, like, 
use like an acid bath, which just seems counterintuitive to me. Yeah, I don't understand how that would work. Well, usually it doesn't. There was, I can't remember what you're saying, but there was one that just completely destroyed their skin and they were like... What did they think it was going to do? How did this happen? What did they think was going to happen? I'm like, it would just eat away at the skin. Isn't that what people use to try to get rid of bodies? Yeah. And then, so the wax is one of the more common successful things. So this is, that's why it's so similar to St. Victoria, which we saw, even though she was not incorruptible, it's the same way that they would preserve her body. I'm wondering if they would use clear, clear wax. Actually, no, because I did look at some other incorruptible saints after we had seen her. So our impression from seeing the saint was I didn't realize how we didn't recognizable. Yes, exactly. Like we had no idea if there was anything under there. Like there was no way to know if there were any bones or remains underneath. Mm -hmm. It it didn't even look like wax to me. It's not at all what I expected. I thought it was gonna be. Um, I don't know. It's just not what I thought. I thought there was gonna be this corpse lying there. Um, but I guess she was covered in wax. But the wax looks like. Um, Oh, what did I say? Like pottery, like porcelain, like por well, yeah, like porcelain. It really doesn't look like anything had really been truly poured over a human body. So for me, it was like, is she actually under there, or is this just um, a piece of artwork? Right, and it looked like. A statue, basically. It looked like yeah. any of the other statues in a church. Mm -hmm. But, I, so I had a thought maybe be a little bit different. Yeah, it really didn't look, there was also, like, on one side of the reliquary, there was a statue of Jesus lying down. On the other, there was the wax form of her, and they looked very similar. Like, to mm -hmm. me, other than the fact that one was female, one was male, one was Jesus, one was not Jesus, um... The way in which they were displayed looked exactly the same to me. That was that's a really good point because there's like one is just a statue and the other one has a body underneath it. Yeah, will look exactly the same. But there is another Saint Victoria in um, in Italy that is actually incorruptible, and she her body was covered in wax. It is almost the exact same thing. It's like you would have no idea that there was a body under there. Yeah. That's very interesting. Were the clothes covered in wax, too? Or were the clothes put on after the wax was poured on the body? It looks like... I don't even think it was put on. It almost looks like it's the same sort of thing where it was crafted rather than just poured yeah. onto the body. Yeah, so um, that just is hard for me to validate, personally. Yeah, you don't even know if there's someone under there. Like, it literally... You can still see, I think, you can still see her teeth, it looks like. Ooh. But other than that, it's like, you know, it's totally... Okay. So now we're going to go into um, what relics are and what the process of collecting them is. So there are many different forms of relics. There's the first, second, and third degree relics. Um, I'm going to be mainly 
I'm really only going to be talking about first degree relics for the most part. So a first degree relic would be, um, it's typically bone or blood. A second degree relic might be an item of the saint's clothing or a memorable item of theirs. And then a third degree relic would be something that touched a first or second degree relic. So if I were to touch a relic, or if Janelle were to touch a relic, would that make us third degree relics? I want to be a living relic. A living relic. So all things are possible with God, as Alexis says. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there are different, different forms of relics. So Janelle talked a little bit about incorruptible saints. Mentioned that not all saints need to be incorruptible and it's not even it's not even something they look for anymore but uh, to become a saint part of that process is exhuming the grave uh, and examining the body so that is just the process that would happen with anybody who uh, the church thinks may be a saint part of that process first and foremost would be to dig up the body. Um, and mainly one of the big points of digging up the body is to prove that this person did indeed live and die. Like this is a real person who lived and died and this is the person that we think it is. So, that is such a good point. Yes. I never thought of so that. So basically identifying the body, um, because, you know, maybe you, you said this person died and they're not even in the grave under the ground. So they just have to first get that main fact out of the way. This person lived and this person died. And then they go into the research of, is this person that we just dug up? Is this the person that we think it is? So that is all part of the process. Um, and during that process, some things have not decomposed in the way that you might think they would. Um, so that is when they would they would find that out. So that's not, they're not just digging up the graves to see if they're incorruptible. That just happens through the process. So I said the word process a lot. What is the process? So what is the process of collecting first class relics? Um, it kind of seems an oddity and indeed it is. So I found this article. I read an account by Archbishop Paul Coakley who was tasked with finding cause for canonization of Father Stanley Rother. Father Stanley Rother was a missionary who was killed by rebels in Guatemala. Um, and he was killed in the 80s, so this is quite recent. Wow. Part of what he did, part of what um, Archbishop Paul Coley did, was exhume the body to collect first-class relics. Coakley admitted to being a bit lost. He actually stated it happened so rarely, they didn't know how to go about prepping for this. Um, so for so he did admit that this, this happened so rarely that I really didn't, he's saying, I really didn't know what to do. Wow. Um, you know, and, and to be fair, um, I found this article, but there's not a lot out there. Um, I, I did a couple hours of searching before um, I actually came across this article. So there's just not a lot of information out there about the process for collecting first-class relics. And to be fair, there haven't been, to my knowledge, a lot of people going through the process of potential, potentially being canonized as a saint recently. 
So that makes sense. So again, Coakley admitted that he didn't really know what was going on. Um, what he did was he first obtained the permission from the priest's surviving siblings in order to exhume the body. Um, they cannot exhume the body without permission from um, someone in the family, or I'm assuming if there's no family present anymore, someone else with a, in a line of people that they knew that was were close to them, I assume. Right. Otherwise, it's probably just grave robbery. Right. Borderline grave robbery? But anyway, they gave permission. His siblings did give permission for them to exhume the body. Then, according to the Vatican Protocol, he gathered a team of Catholic witnesses. And these witnesses were um, people in the medical field. This included a pathologist and an orthopedic surgeon. In the process, they took one of Father Stanley's ribs. So it can only be assumed that the orthopedic surgeon did this. It was not stated, but I would assume that that is who would remove the rib. Unless it was just strong arm, like... <laughs> I know, they didn't say that, but I'm like, well, they said there was an orthopedic surgeon. So I assume they did it respectfully with the... I don't know, maybe they blessed the saw. I don't... I just going to feel it. Right, I don't know. Um, they did say that there was a lot of respect done in the, in the process. Um, so I think it was very important for those to be involved, to be Catholic, to understand really, like, what this meant spiritually oh, that's to the church. Point, so yeah. it, pretty much everyone involved were Catholic um, people in the medical field, along with the archbishop. So they took one of Father Stanley's ribs. Um, the rib then was sent to St. Lucia, I believe St. Lucia in Rome, they have expertise in prepping relics. The sisters there would then divide the rib into many tiny fragments that will then have been encased in reliquaries. Uh, in fact, a second class relic was born when the bone that was sent away was wrapped in a special cloth. They said it was special. I don't know what made it special, but it was a special cloth. That cloth was wrapped around the rib once it was unwrapped, this cloth then began its journey as a second-degree relic. Um, and the, the sisters punched out small, teeny-tiny holes in the cloth um, and then put them on the back of prayer cards that were sent out to bishops. So that was really cool. They did mention that um, the sisters were used to working with second-class relics like that, but they really had not come across an actual bone before, so they oh, didn't. Oh, I wonder if they yeah. had gotten this stuff from like the families of the saints, mm -hmm. and, like just like their like items, maybe. Yeah. So I don't know if anyone in recent years has dealt with that. There, they made it seem like it was very new to them. So I'm not sure what the process is for chipping away at the rib. Yeah. I have no idea, um, and that was not divulged in any of the articles that I looked at. So again, that might stay a mystery. I'm not sure if they used a hammer. I'm not sure if they used a little chisel. I really have no idea, and I really wanted to know. So unfortunately, I do not have that information. Um, but something more interesting that I almost left out, um, because I thought, oh, I'm done reading this. No, I'm not done reading this. So <laughs> before his body left um, Guatemala, 
his heart was taken. So his heart has been preserved, um, and it stays with the people of the church that he was working with on his missionary work, but there wasn't a lot of details in this, but before his body was brought back to the U.S., his heart had been taken, and so had some of his blood. So So. his heart stayed in Guatemala. I don't know that it was done properly. Okay, but I like it. It sounds, it just sounds sweeter that way. It is sweet. His heart remains in Guatemala. Um, but there is no information on how they collected his heart. Um, and then upon further research, it looked like his heart and some of his blood was taken by the people of Santiago before he was buried. So, hmm. And I think, I don't, they didn't have permission for this. No. But it sounds like, you know, they had some inkling that this man was going to be yes. a saint. Or, you know, they're like, we want something to remember him by. They so they, did. Had, they They knew. They knew something was going, the direction this was going. Yes. But to me, I'm like, I would never think to be like, wow, that priest was killed. I better cut out his heart. Well, I'm sure it happened in the, maybe the embalming process. Or not, maybe not embalming, but like the, I have a feeling that process. It's because they're... They could, I mean, what if it was, like, you know, it was, like, maybe one of his parishioners was the mortician, and he was, like, well, just, you think they just cut out his heart with, like, a knife? Because there's so little information about it, I can only assume the worst. Well, also, here's my other thing. What did they do with, like, what, do you know what they did with the heart? Did they just, like, let it sit there and jiggle? So it's preserved in the church. Oh, okay. So it's preserved in the church, um. I also want to say, when I was reading this article, you know when you read things, you just kind of imagine what everything looks like. And I am most certain that this is not how this worked, but in my mind, I just imagine them in the dead of night, (laughs) digging up this grave, and just getting the orthopedic surgeon with the chainsaw, just like leaning over the grave in the dead of night, just like doing this in the darkness outside. And so they're just, you know, the the other (laughs) people just saying Hail Mary, trying to make this not weird. In my mind, all I could imagine, all I could picture was (laughs) them at night in the dark in a cemetery, just the three of them removing a rib. Although I'm sure they took his body to like a clinic somewhere and did it. But in my mind... That's exactly what I'm picturing. Yeah, that's exactly just what I'm picturing. Field. Uh, but overall, after doing this research, um, there isn't a lot out there about collecting relics. And I just find it interesting because it's not something... It's an oddity. It's a little bit creepy. Um, it's a little bit kind of... It's, it's a mystery, and whenever there's something that's mysterious and there's not a lot of information about it, it's a little bit, I don't know, it's a little bit creepy when you, when you find a topic that there's not a lot of information on that is kind of, could be construed as being dark like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wish there was more information out there because I have a lot of questions about it. I want to know, you know... Typically, who will collect the relics? How are these small chips of bone taken? How do they know how much to take and what respectfully to leave? Right, and, like, what's the limit? Like, I guess, I guess, how do they weigh 
respect for the body and need of, I guess, quote-unquote need of yeah. the people. And really, is there this big of a need today? Um, yeah, and how much to take? Because when we were in the reliquary um, last week, we saw really tiny chips of bone, and then we saw a femur. You know, yeah. so like, where do you draw the line? Who's in charge of this? Who's make who makes these decisions? Um, I just feel like for me, there's not a lot of information on the questions I have, and maybe that's because not everybody has these questions. They just leave it as is. But I mm -hmm. want to know these things. Like, who is the specialist here? Who? Mm -hmm. How do they get trained in this? Um, where does the information come from? There were some things that the Vatican had stated about collecting relics, but it was very, it was like a couple sentences and it was really vague, so I didn't even put it in here because mm -hmm. to me it just was so general it meant absolutely nothing. Like it was the most nothingness sentence I've ever read in my life, if that makes sense. Like if you ever yeah. just read a sentence and you're like, what was that? That's exactly how I felt when I read this. So it's just to me it's shrouded in mystery. And I don't know if that's because it's meant to be mysterious, um, or maybe they're trying to hide some shady stuff. I don't know because there's not, that's, there's these not, are the right. things you jump to conclusions on because there's no information. Um, or maybe people just aren't asking these questions. I think it's probably hard too because this is something that has been going on for like 2,000 mm -hmm. years and it changes so much. And I think, too, like, I mean, like you said earlier, you know, there's, I guess there's not a lot of, I don't, I don't know what the process is like now, like, do, are we still collecting relics, or is it just, you know, more recent saints, like, uh, mm -hmm. Mother Teresa, is that, like, you know, one of the only ones, like, the newly yeah. passed are we, saints or St. Are Saint we digging up, we're realizing that, oh my gosh, we're almost out of St. Zita. We've got no more St. Zita to go around. We need to dig her back up. Right. Do they, like, keep collecting or, like, once it's done, it's done? Like, yeah. I don't, that, I guess that's my biggest question. Is it, is it, like you said. How much are you going to compromise the body? Mm hmm So, Father Stanley Rother, he has been recognized by Pope Francis as a martyr. He has not yet been given the title of saint. He's a blessed. So that's the, the one of the steps in the way of sainthood is when you're being considered you, they consider you quote-unquote blessed. So that's like one of the benchmarks. I guess. Things. So it'll be interesting. I don't know if he'll stay just blessed or if he'll become a saint or, um, or what. But to the other thing, going back to relics that you brought up, was really interesting if you want to talk on that point that you had yeah when I, we were in the royal query i afterwards we were discussing it and i was like it's really strange to me that it's common practice and like encouraged that the bodies of saints are like distri like distributed like pieces are distributed to people all over the world but in catholic tradition you are, like, actually, I think we talked about this back in episode one, you have to be buried as a whole, like, 
they've recently allowed cremation, but you can't, the, the cremains have to stay buried in one spot. Like you can't, like some people like to have cremains of their family member, but that is not allowed in the Catholic church. So it just seems like a weird double standard almost. Like mm-hmm. I don't understand why, why is it okay and encouraged to have, you know, parts of saints all over the world. And when we believe, you know, when there is a belief that anybody can be a saint, and if you're going to heaven that you are technically a quote-unquote saint, why can't other people have memories of you? So, yeah, but it's interesting that we do make that exception for saints. Right. And one other thing that I thought was weird was... So when this shrine was created, let me see, Father Father Gardner went over to Rome. Ooh, right. I feel like this story is so interesting. He went over to Rome, and the, the banditti had been stealing relics and selling them on the, basically the black market. Mm-hmm. So he went and bought up a whole bunch of them and then brought them back to America. So he went to, I think, a bishop in New York and was like, I want to distribute these throughout America because it's like the 1800s and the Catholic Church said America is young and, you know, we should share this. He's like, no, 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 you keep them. And then this could be a place of pilgrimage at Maria Stein. This brings up two questions, I think. Okay. Question one. How do we know... That these relics are legit. Well, there is that whole thing about the red string. That's true. Which just sounds bogus to me, honestly, because that could easily be replicated. Right. So what she's talking about is there is there's a whole process for validating relics that we learned about in at the reliquary, which is really cool. There's a special seal. There is a, you know, a red string around it that is, you know, it's unbroken. It's supposed to be intact. There is a um, a letter that goes along with it, like a, like a certificate. But I just feel like in a situation like this where it's very hard to trace the origins and they've mm-hmm. been stolen, I feel like it would be all too easy to kind of make some of the stuff up. My second question is, it's not even a question, just more of a musing. I think it's interesting that instead of having these like thousands like thousands of relics instead of like giving them out mm-hmm. he just sort of like yeah no i think the thing to do is to keep it all in one place yeah which is like it to me when i read that and when we were looking around it feels like there might have been almost like a bit of a fight for these relics. Yeah, and it's especially in that time, you know, relics were harder to get to America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every church basically wants to be the best. Yeah, well, I mean, every church wants a relic, not even right. necessarily to even be the best, but every church wants a relic. And, you know, there's you're supposed to have like a relic in the yeah. altar. So it's like if. I feel like the churches may have been. Fighting over these relics, like I'm sure who has the most relics, who's going to be the most notorious. Like it just feels like at this time, mm-hmm. this was the 18th century. 
Uh, 19th. 19th century, that this was just, maybe not the best thing that was happening within the churches. No, and especially since I'm sure at this time it doesn't sound like a lot of churches had any relics. hmm And there's, like, that's, you know, hundreds of churches that don't have any right. relics that you could have given, but you're like, we're gonna keep them all. Yeah. I don't know, it just seems kind of... A little selfish. A little selfish, yeah. I mean, it's a very cool place now, and it's mm-hmm. a great opportunity to go see it, but it just seems that, that it was not like the most flattering origin story I, did, I thought. No. I was like, oh. Yeah. We have our friend Alexis on the podcast today. She is going to answer some questions for us. So, Alexis, tell me just a little bit about yourself. Um, sure. So, um, I'm currently in graduate school at the Catholic University of America. I'm getting a degree in canon law. Um, so even though I am in the process of getting a degree, like, no, by no means is my opinion expert. I'm still just like the average lay person that just loves the faith. Um, and I guess aside from my background, like, was there anything else that you'd like me to divulge to you all? Ooh, tell us one fun fact about yourself. Oh, so one fat fun fact about myself is I enjoy blowing bubbles for fun. Ooh, okay, <laughs> I love that. It is the season for blowing bubbles. And that is so you, Alexis. <laughs> Alexis is like one of the most just fun people out there. Oh my gosh, yes. So I know you said you're no expert, but I feel like compared to myself and Janelle, you have a lot more education in the area. So we are excited to hear your answers to some of the questions we have. Our first question is, if you could give like an explanation on why um, saints and relics are so important to Catholicism and also um, what importance like the saints have in your life. Sure. So... First off, regarding the importance of saints, so the technical definition of a saint is someone who's the holy life and um, one who is officially canonized in the church is um, un- is um, understood to already have reached the goal of heaven. And um, but. Um, regardless of whether we're canonized as an official saint in the church or not, we're all called to become saints because um, we're all called to have eternal union with God in heaven. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the lives of the saints, you see that there's just so many diverse stories. And it's not just, you know, those pious priests and nuns but it's also (laughs) ordinary lay people Um, and it's really great how this past century um the popes have been really good about um canonizing regular lay people like uh let me think like like blessed chiara or um pure georgia prasadi and so um when you pray to the saints, it's not worshiping them, but rather, like, you're asking them, like, to pray for you and to help you out, just like you would, like, someone who's alive that's living out the faith. You ask them, hey, can you pray for me? And you share your struggles with them. So that's how it is. It's like you just happen to have, like, some good friends in heaven. Ooh, I so, like that. I like that because I feel like that's one of those points that if you don't know a lot about the Catholic Church, you might misunderstand. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. Because, like, when you say you're praying to someone, it's like, you have to understand, like, to pray to someone is different than worshiping someone, than worshiping someone. Like, um, worshiping is reserved to God alone. But when you're praying, like, that's a different thing. Like, you could also be asking for intercession or for help. Or, because when you pray, it's sort of like that open communication of, of a relationship. But but distinguish it from, like, your, your communication to God is that you worship God. Oh, yeah. yeah. I feel like that's really helpful, that mm-hmm. that uh, distinguishing between those. So any, what about relics? Like, what um, what is the importance of relics in the Catholic faith? Yeah, so going back to, like, that personal connection with the saints. So, uh, let's just like when you have a friend or a loved one, you have something that belongs to them, whether it's, like, I don't know, a scarf or a picture of them. And sometimes, like, this is maybe more prevalent back in, like, the Victorian time, but maybe you might even have, like, a lock of hair that mm-hmm. you have keepsake. So, in a sense, like, relics are, like, keepsakes of, um, of the saints. And, however, like, because these saints are having in with God, basically, because they're already in heaven, some of these these relics can also have a very powerful effect and have um, miracles associated with them just because, um, you know, with God, all things are possible, and these saints help us to um, grow closer to God. So that, that kind of leads into our other question. Um, so when we went to, we went to um, Maria Stein, um, like the reliquary. Um, and so uh, we, was that? I'm just saying nice. That's a really cool place. Have you been there? When I was with the Little Sisters of the Poor, I had an assignment in Cincinnati, at Cincinnati Home. Oh. And we went to Maria Stein, so I've also been there, so I know what place you're talking about. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, it was beautiful. I had never been to a reliquary before. I'd never been in uh, a room with so many relics. It was very interesting almost a little overwhelming because there was just so there was just so many saints there was just this huge book you could go through all of them it was amazing even like um we were looking for saint zita um and she was there which is really cool because that is my confirmation saint so it was really interesting no kidding like she's a great one isn't she like the patron saint of housemaids or she was a housemaid or something like that yeah i'm pretty sure she is because you had that question more when we were there about like the importance of yeah so there's like different classes of relics i was curious in i guess in your opinion what is the importance of in today's day and age having first class relics because i know like a lot of this started from way back when, when they would build churches on top of maybe a saint's grave. Um, It it seems to be like that is kind of where some of this has spawned from over the years. And when we were, when we were there, we were wondering, like, we were reading some of the materials and they said that there's been, you know, as the church grew bigger, there's more and more demand for relics. And we were kind of wondering, like, you know, you'd have to go back to the saint's body and for in, in order to have a first class relic, collect collect things. And we were wondering about, I guess, kind of the necessity of that and, you know, um, the importance of first class relics as opposed to 
maybe second other, or third yeah. class relics. If that makes sense. I feel like we kind of yeah. went on a Yeah, we kind there. of did. <laughs> oh, I didn't, that's interesting. I didn't realize like more people are seeking out first class relics these days, but that's like so interesting because like when you first talk about relics with people, you're like a little freaked out. You're like, you have a part of a person's Right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the, it's a very interesting part of the Catholic church. Yeah, and I think the time period that they were talking about was more in the time of, like, I believe it was, hold on, actually, like, the 1800s or so, as the, they were, yeah, when they were starting to, like, you know, starting the church in America, not starting it, but it was, you know, America was growing, and the church was growing throughout the world, and there was, um, it was becoming harder and harder yeah. to find relics, so it- I guess it was that, more of that time period. Okay, so, um, in regards to, like like factual information i'm not i'm not sure how much i can speak on it but i guess just from what i know from like personally encountering relics um there's just something very powerful about the presence of the saints and Mm -hmm. i feel like when you went into that reliquary there's probably like this presence that you're you you experience when you're there um if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm so for the first class relic, um, I know that um, in the churches, whenever an altar is built, they usually put a relic in there. Mm-hmm. The reason I, I'm not totally sure, but um, I'm sure, but um, I just know that at least for the mass, like when you celebrate the mass, it's believed that, um, and when uh, the priest is, um, invoking the power of the Holy Spirit to make Jesus truly present um, in the bread and wine so that it truly becomes his body and blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like being in heaven itself because uh, being in heaven is truly being in the presence of God. And when that happens, you're worshiping with the angels and saints in heaven in the mass. So that kind of gives us a tangible connection to a saint who is also celebrating with us in heaven. Is that right? Yeah, so, like, that's just a little bit of a uh, inference I'm kind of making just from my own little smatterings of Catholicism and relics in the Mass and trying to put things together. No, I think that that actually makes a lot of sense. I feel like that helps kind of explain a lot of that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about your experience with relics, like, if it's at Maria Stein or any anywhere else you've seen relics. Like, what are your most impactful experiences? Um, so aside from Maria Stein, um, there's also this amazing place with over a thousand relics hmm. at, at a place called St. Anthony's in Pittsburgh, and wow. you definitely up there, really cool place. Um, and when I was in religious life, there's, we also had this thing called an All Saints Vigil, which is on Halloween, because, you know, Halloween, Hallow's Eve. Um, vigil before All Saint, the Feast of All Saints, and um, it was a beautiful service held to reflect on the lives of the saints and ask for their intercession. And we also would set up this room full of all these relics for people to just take time to um, venerate the saints and to just pray with them and ask for their intercession. Oh, that um, is that's so really cool. cool. That is really cool. Yeah. So, um, definitely whenever you're in a presence of a relic, it is definitely, um, like there's a, there's like an element of encounter 
involved. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in the presence of something really holy, and you know that there's like that connection to heavenly reality, um, it's just something like it just brings you a lot of peace, like and just gives you that desire to just want to grow closer to God and become the saint that God is calling you to be in your own special and unique way. Just like how to all the saints in their own uh, unique way, um, like brought glory to God with their own lives. That is cool. I like that. Yeah, you know, now thinking about it when we were in the reliquary, I didn't feel it was like just a very peaceful place. It was. And I was really excited. It just, this is going to sound weird, but I felt like I was, like, it almost was not like meeting, kind of like meeting a celebrity. You know, you're like, this is a saint that I've always felt a connection with, and here's a piece of them, you know, and then, and it's like so, you're like, this is actually a piece of them, someone who's so holy, and someone whose life I've looked up to. Yeah. It just makes it so real. It makes it really real. I know. It was really cool. We were, like, going around the whole room, like, looking at the book, trying to find the saints we were looking for, looking at different relics, and, like, going back to the book and seeing, you know, what saint was associated with that relic. So, yeah, it was it was exciting. Yeah, because, I mean, it's one thing to know that, you know, someone's in heaven, and they're, like, looking after you and praying for you, but, like, there's something about it that just... That there's just like a fullness when you actually have this sense of presence in the physical realm because we are both body and soul. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. I just like, yeah, that is the very clarifying. I Mm -hmm. feel like this makes so much more sense. And it makes you kind of feel like they're real because sometimes it feels like they're so large. The saints can be so larger than life and you're Mm -hmm. like, it really ties you to them and like they were actual living people. Yeah. Well, I think even, like, Alexis brought it up, it's like, you know, back in the day when people would keep a lock of someone's hair because they didn't have the ability to take photographs. I think that, in that sense, it does make them more real. They become less than just, not less than, but, like, you feel, sometimes, like, you're just reading a story, but it kind of puts that story into perspective of, oh, this is, this is a story of an actual person's life if that makes sense like it just guess it gives you perspective and like seeing you know seeing something tangible associated with with those those stories about their life yeah and it and it's just amazing to think you know just even just the ordinary events of her life no matter how boring or like you know insignificant insignificant may seem like there is like an element of the extraordinary if you're open to the presence of God and this uh, um, entity that can be present in every moment if you're open to it. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. I love that. Well, they say with God, all things are possible, and I mean, like, like, and that's like, and that's like such a genuine thing because all of us have our own struggles, and when you look at the lives of some of those things, like. St. Francis, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Mary of Egypt, like, they had very rough beginnings as well. Like, Mm -hmm. some of them, wild, but it's it's so true. But then, like, when they realize, like, how much God loved them and they're calling to return that love, like, it wasn't just, like, something that happened overnight, but it took them, like, 
a span, span of their lives to get there. So it's just like, you know, we have our good and bad days. Like, yeah, we're struggling, but like, you know, God's mercy knows no end. And the fact that like we keep trying, like, and we keep running to God's mercy, like, we're going to be, we're going to become saints with his grace, like, whether that's a lowercase or a capital letter. Oh, I like that. Ooh, I love that. Oh, yeah, you're giving us all the best quotes right I now. I know. <laughs> we're going to be saints, whether a lowercase or uppercase. Wait, I love that. Oh, that's good. That's, that's really so good. good. <laughs> Alexis, do you have any saints that you have a personal devotion to? Um, first and foremost, be Mary, mother of Jesus, greatest saint of all. Mm-hmm. Said yes to God. And of course, your husband, St. Joseph, man of silent action, dreamer. Um, but um, besides just the Holy Family, I've always been uh, drawn to St. Therese of the Sioux. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I think what draws me the most to her is just, uh, just her joy. But also just the, um, just knowing the facts of her life or just knowing her struggles and that she was just like, you know, very emotional. Like, I very much connected with her just um, how, like, human she was, but how much she loved Jesus and let Jesus just take her to the heights of holiness um, through her littleness. Is she the one who had, um, oh, was she the little way? Yes. That? Okay. That reminds me very much of you. Just you know, all the the holiness and all the everyday things. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, you, she's really making it. She's really left a, she's really made a mark on me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Only another question. And this one's just kind of off the cuff. If, yeah. Do you know how relics are collected? Do you have any knowledge? So when I was thinking about this, so there can be the way, you know, um, it could be collected from a person, a dead person's remains. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be also, um, this is very interesting. So there's some very interesting stories about how some people, that, like, relics are collected. Like, uh, St. Maximilian Colby, um, Franciscan friar who perished um, in a concentration camp. So there's no um, remains left of him because his body was cremated after he was starved to death. Oh. While he's alive, his people recognize his holiness. They saved uh, trimmings from his beard, even though they told him not to do it. <laughs> <gasps> oh my, oh my gosh. gosh. It's, 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 I feel like that is very telling. Like, if you are in the presence of someone who is just that holy, that you're like, I need to take your beard. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like that wouldn't cross the mind of someone unless, I don't know, like. Yeah. Unless you knew. Yeah. Oh, that is really interesting. That is really interesting. Do you have any other stories that you know? This is it really... This one's a little bit quirkier. Um, oh, perfect. Perfect for us. So when St. Therese was on her deathbed, died from tuberculosis, she just had this immense confidence, like, um, which was rightful just during the sum of her life, but not recommended for everybody. Like, she <laughs> clipped her fingernails and put them in an envelope and gave it to her sister and said, hey, you're... These are going to become relics later. <laughs> Girl, you're going to want these someday. Oh, my God. Wait, yes, the confidence there. Yeah. Oh. It's amazing. Wait, that is so great. I love that. That is so cool. And I don't know. I just felt like you both would really appreciate that story. Oh, I yes. love that story. 
<laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, I just, yeah, I was doing a lot of research and I didn't really find a lot. So th- this is great to add to um, some of the research I did. That's, I mean, I love that they're, both of the stories you told her, they're still very much alive when these were mm-hmm. taken or given in, in her case, which is amazing. Yeah, and a lot of times we think of, like, relics to be, like, bone. Mm-hmm. But they're, this just opens up a whole other, you know, world of relics, fingernails, hair, yeah. blood, like, all that sort of stuff. Right. And I think this is more of, like, in the realm of, like, second-class relics. But I know, like, there's some things where, like, characters are, like, people's piece, pieces of people's clothing. Yeah, I think one of the ones we saw, and I'm hoping I'm not messing this up, but I think it was... Um, the gravel or the dirt from I believe it was St. Francis of Assisi but I always get people mixed up but like where he lived and that he walked on which I thought was really interesting oh that is really cool I know um I can't I'm terrible with memory but I'm going to be talking about it in this episode but um from the research I did um they actually the cloth that they wrapped the first class relics in for this priest um so it was like um a rib that they took from him, they wrapped that rib in a cloth, and then that cloth became a second-class relic and was sent to, um, sent away to, I forget where, but, um, there are nuns that, that work with relics, and they punched out little tiny, like, little tiny bits of this cloth and put them, um, it will distributed them to different bishops. Oh, on, that's I, cool. I think on prayer cards. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, that is so, so cool. yeah, it was really cool. All right, well, thank you so much, Alexis. Yeah, thank you again for um, having me, and I really enjoyed this. I can't believe it's already been half an hour at Cuba. I, I know, know, me either. I was like, wow. So if you feel like someday you might be a saint, maybe just keep some toenails, uh, keep some toenails in a bag. <laughs> yeah, keep some toenails in a bag. You know, save those fake eyelashes. Those are secondary <laughs> relics right there. Um, Maybe just do it just in case, you know. Case. Shave your head, put it put it somewhere. When you get sick and you got a lot of boogie Kleenexes, <laughs> say so. <laughs> put them in a box somewhere with a note on it. Man, that would be the coolest the secondary relic. Secondary relic. Um. When your socks are so sweaty, you could wring them out. Save it. Oh my gosh. Saint sweat. Saints. Saint sweat. What Save else? your baby teeth. Save. I still have all mine somewhere. Do you? My mom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my mom kept, like, literally all my baby teeth. Maybe your mom knows something that you It's actually, like, a disgusting amount of teeth. It's gross. That's very gross. But she, very maybe gross. your mom thinks you're going to be a saint. But I think she still has them somewhere. Alright, eat your beans, guys! Bye! What? <laughs> it's like that lady who tried to <laughs> fix that old painting of Jesus and, like, however many years ago, and she, like, fucked up his face, and it, like, looks like... You know what I'm talking about. Getting chips, she's like, I'm gonna fix it. And then he ends up looking like this painting of the scream meets, like, a bear. A wild bear. Oh my gosh! Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at official underscore plot twist pod. 
music is courtesy of Matthew Modena and our resources are in the show notes.